If you have your Bibles, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me to the book of Nehemiah chapter 1. We have spent seven weeks in the book of Ezra. Now we come to Nehemiah. So turn to Ezra, flip a few pages to the right, and you will find Nehemiah. Or if you haven't been with us for a while, go to Psalm and start working backwards. But welcome to week eight of our Ezra-Nehemiah series where we are looking at this picture of renovation of what God wants to do in and through our lives. These two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, stand as testimonies to the truth that God keeps his people and God keeps his promises. And the book of Ezra and Nehemiah tell a story of restoration, how God's people started over following failure. And as we saw last week, and let me just say a thank you to Pastor Jordan and Pastor Mike who led us the last two weeks in this series. But as we saw last week, Ezra does not end the way we would expect it to end. It ends with Ezra pulling out his hair, and it ends with a list of names of people who had intermarried. So kind of like, that's not the way I would have ended the book, but that is the way Ezra does. And Mike kind of alluded to this last week, but not only can the Bible end differently than we anticipate, or Bible book, excuse me, end differently than we anticipate, life has a way of also not always working out the way we would imagine. Challenges, troubles, failures, betrayals, turns in the road that we never saw coming. Life has a way of taking us places that we never planned to go. Anyone else relate to that? Places that we never intended to go. Some, sometimes the troubles are our fault, things that we do. I hear people all the time say, you know, all things happen for a reason. Most of the time that reason is we're just dumb and make terrible decisions. So thank you, Mike. Thank you for that. Amen. About There we go. So sometimes that is it. But other times, let's be honest, it's not because of us. It's things done to us, things done around us. Regardless, wherever we are today, our story isn't over. And the way I know your story is not over is that you're here. You are here, therefore God is not done with you. Our journey is not complete. God is not done yet. God is still restoring. And to those who, who love him, who follow him, the Bible says God will work all things together for our good. And he gets to define what good looks like in our lives. But as we walk through Ezra and Nehemiah, what we see is this. Our story is similar to the story of God's people. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, the people of Ezra and Nehemiah see God's work continue in their life. In the same way, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we see God's work begin and continue in our lives lives when we meet nehemiah we're about to meet him he is wearing the robe of royalty he is the king's cupbearer and i know some of you are thinking the king's cupbearer that's not a great job because you have to taste the food or the drink before the king tastes it or drinks it and if the king is a bad king or people don't like him that would mean the cupbearer would die before the king so who would want that job at the same time a cupbearer was also a very trusted position because he was in the inner circle. He heard what the king talked about when he ate. He stood before the king. He was literally in a high position. 
in the kingdom. But though he was in a position of power, his heart began to beat differently for the people of Jerusalem, who were 900 miles away. So Nehemiah exchanged his royal robe for a pair of overalls. And I only say that because Mike said last week they wore pants and they put them on just like we do. So he has overalls now, and that is what we were going to see Nehemiah wearing throughout this book. But let's dive in together, and let's behold what God has for us. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and then unpack this in the time that we have remaining. Verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servant, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandment and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Father, we confess right this moment, Lord, this is your word. It is living and it is powerful. It has been read. Your spirit attends it. Lord, speak, O oh God, for we are listening. We're listening, God. Speak to every heart and life in this room. Those watching online, speak, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. When we think about the section of the Bible that Ezra and Nehemiah is in, so the Old Testament, some 40% of the Old Testament is narrative, meaning a story is being told. And as we hear a lot around here, the Bible is one big story of, of redemption from beginning to end, a story how, how God will redeem his fallen creation. And we are all made to love stories. Like we love a good story. And Nehemiah draws us into a powerful, real-life story, a story about God's faithfulness to his people and to his word. Therefore, this is a story for all of us. It's a story about all of us. We go through seasons of rebellion. We all go through seasons of ruin where we mess up our lives, and we oftentimes stand with the broken pieces of our life wondering, can God put them back together again? And the amazing news for all of us 
is yes, he can. And yes, he will. We all have the opportunity to return and to, as Pastor Mike said last week, to repent. And that time is, is now. Thankfully, we have a God who keeps coming after his rebellious people and offers us a way to return to him, offers us new life in him. So to get the story this morning, we need a little context. So think about this. We, we started Ezra. Ezra appeared, happened 70 years after kind of the first invasion by Babylon into Judah. 80 years after that, of course, Ezra comes on the scene in Ezra 7. As Pastor Jordan told us, between Ezra 6 and 7, we have the amazing book of Esther. So Ezra comes on the scene, and then 13 years after Ezra, here comes Nehemiah. So many years from the beginning of the book of Ezra. The book of Nehemiah is not just about leadership. It's not just about a masterful leader who helps rebuild broken down walls. Nehemiah's people, Nehemiah's city, have history. These are the people to whom God made promises. God made promises that reach all the way back to the beginning of this whole story. And God made promises that reach forward all the way to us and to the end of the story. But as we said at the beginning, through Ezra and Nehemiah, this is the last picture of Old Testament history that we have. And we have a, a glimpse, one last compelling picture of what God does to the remnant who have returned to Jerusalem after their exile. And as Nehemiah tells the story, we're not only going to see the walls being rebuilt, we're going to see a people being rebuilt by the word. It's the whole reason we call this series Renovation, because God is able to renovate us, his people, by and through his word. You know, we're just dumb enough to believe that God keeps his word. We're just dumb enough to believe that if we stand up here and we proclaim the word of God, God does what he does. And I say dumb enough, we really know how smart we are because we know how trustworthy he is. And if that sounds prideful to you, I'm sorry. I'm not prideful to me. I will mess it up a thousand different ways. But I'll tell you this, I have confidence in a God who never fails and who will never mess it up. In fact, we sang two different times this morning, he wins every battle. If you feel like today you're in a battle with God, go ahead and surrender. Go ahead and get ready to come down this morning to the altar call because you can't win. You can't win. He will win. So what I want to do today is I want to unpack three pictures that we see in Nehemiah 1. Really, two pictures that we see from Nehemiah 1 and then one picture that we see from our lives every day. The first picture is this, the reality of broken down walls. The reality of broken down walls. Look at verses 2 and 3. You see it on the screen. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exiles in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Listen, we are not a people who depend on literal gates and walls for our protection. But in this period of human history that we are reading about, gates and walls were so important, probably even more important than a city's army. Because without walls, a city could not control its own affairs, and a city, basically everything about that city could be dictated by any outside forces if you did not have walls. 
And what we know about walls is walls often speak of separation. So we know that. Walls speak of separation in one sense, especially in our world. That's what walls speak of. Walls separate. They divide. In Jerusalem, the walls showed a separation between God's holy people and the outside world. God has set a spiritual hedge of protection around his people, but these walls also were showing that to the world. But as the people of God continued to sin against God, it became basically they were separated but apart from God's blessing because God was no longer blessing them. So the walls speak of separation, but walls also speak of protection. In the natural sense, the walls of Jerusalem were there for the protection of God's people. The lack of city walls here in Nehemiah meant the people were defenseless against any enemy. They were at the mercy of any band of raiders that would come in. Any violent outside force could impose their will on the people of Jerusalem because they had no walls of protection. In fact, think about walls and protection, and then think about this. In Proverbs 25, 28, it says this, A person without self-control is like a city broken down without walls. If you have no self-control, you have no protection. Just like a city has no protection without walls. You will go wherever your lack of self-control takes you. Which begs the question, and please hear this. What walls are broken down right now in your life? What walls are broken down in the life of your family? What walls might even be broken down in this God's church? Listen, we must identify them. We must weep over them and then by God's grace with God's help we must get to work repairing those very walls for the sake of our lives for the sake of our families for the sake of this his church it begins with us seeing the reality God making it clear for our lives for our world Francis Schaeffer once described the human race as a glorious ruin He said, we are glorious because we have been made in the very image of God. God made us in his image. God made us for his glory. Yet, he says, we're ruined because we love God's stuff more than we love God. We love what God has made over the maker. We love creation more than we love the creator. So we are broken people, a glorious Ruin, oftentimes we find ourselves, because of our ruin, sitting in the midst of rubble, in the midst of broken down walls in our lives. Oh, that God would help us to see what those broken down walls are. And let me just say this, it's so easy for us to get used to those broken down walls. So easy for us just to say, that's just the way things are. Here's a good question. Yes, it might be the things, the way things are, but is it the way God intends them to be? That's the question for all of our lives. Is it the way God intends it to be? The reality of broken down walls leads us, secondly, to the reality of a broken and contrite heart. God broke Nehemiah's heart. Look at verse 4 and verse 6. You'll see it on the screen. Nehemiah says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. 
And he prayed in verse 6, let your ear be attentive, your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. And what we have here are some very odd verses. Nehemiah hears that Jerusalem's walls are down, the gates have been burned, and it knocks him to his knees in prayer. He fasts and he prays for days. Maybe you're thinking, well, that doesn't sound odd. That sounds like what you're supposed to do. It's the way I remember it when I saw it and learned it in children's church. But let me tell you why it's odd. Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer. He lives in a palace 900 miles away from Jerusalem. What reason could he possibly have for being sympathetic about people 900 miles away? He is in a palace, living life, making connections, having earned a high rank in the kingdom. Yet at the news of the state of his people, most of whom he had never met, he is weeping and praying before God. His heart is breaking in that moment. These walls had been in ruin for some 140 years. Now, some believe that maybe the people tried to attempt to build them over the years. and They continue to get broken down. Whatever you want to choose to believe, here's the deal. They're broken down. They're broken down. And likely this wasn't the first time that Nehemiah had heard about the condition of Jerusalem and the walls. So the question becomes, if this isn't the first time he had heard this, then why is he responding like he is? And here's the answer. Because in that very moment, at that very time, God was breaking his heart. If sometimes we'll hear something and for some reason we don't, we don't, fear, we don't hear or feel the breaking of our heart of what God is doing. We don't even hear God. But another time we'll put ourselves in a place Maybe like this, where we can hear God and our hearts begin to break for different things or God begins to speak in different ways. So at this moment, Nehemiah is mourning over the condition of his people. He is mourning over people who had lived in a devastated state for over 140 years. And just imagine what it would look like to motivate a people that that's all they ever knew were broken down walls. And you would show up and tell them life can be better for you than it is right now. Can you imagine how hard that must be? Listen, when was the last time our hearts were moved by the condition of our world? So much so that we saw the world around us and our hearts broke for what broke God's heart. That we said it breaks God's heart, therefore it breaks my heart. When was the last time that happened in our lives? Let me tell you this, 500 years later from Nehemiah, another man, we'll call him the son of man, stood in Jerusalem and he wept over Jerusalem. And he wept over Jerusalem because he said, you're like sheep without a shepherd. He wept over Jerusalem because the city was not in physical rubble, but they were in spiritual shambles. They were led by religious leaders who were dangerously hard-hearted towards God. And because they lacked eyes to see and ears to hear, even though Jesus said, I want to gather you, I want to protect you, I want to forgive you, I want to lead you, I want to restore you, instead they ignored him and they said this, let's kill that weeper. Let's kill that one. And as a church, let me tell you what we need. I think we need to get a report like Nehemiah. 
We need to come down from our spiritual ivory towers that we live in, untouched from the realities of the world around us. And we need to begin to engage our city and culture and our world in a way to understand what the broken walls all around us really are. If God would do this, we would see things the way they truly are. And let me just say this. Let me be very clear here. God has done that, and he is doing that. God is opening our eyes all around us to the fate and to the, the reality of the world around us. And guess what we do? We refuse to hear, we refuse to see, and we refuse to act. Oh, that God would break our hearts for what breaks his. But not only was Nehemiah mourning the condition of his people, he was also praying for the exaltation of his God. He was praying that God would be exalted upon hearing the condition of the people told to him upon having the hand of God heavy upon him. I love what Nehemiah does because here's what we would do or here's what Micah would do. Let me just confess my sins because I know you love it when I do that. When God begins to work in my life and his hand is heavy upon me and conviction happens and I see a need, Here's what I begin to do. I begin to, in my own mind, think about, here's what I can do. Here's, I can do this. And I, I put a plan together, and it seems like a great plan. But that's not what Nehemiah does. It's almost as if Nehemiah knows my plan can't accomplish what needs to get done. Only God's plan can. So what Nehemiah does, instead of putting his own plan together, Nehemiah begins to seek the face of God. And in seeking the face of God, he says, if I seek God's face, I will determine and come to know God's will. So Nehemiah isn't just filled up with his own ideas. He, and if you read or just remember what we just read, Nehemiah is not filled up with his own ideas about who God is. Everything that he read came from Scripture. Everything he read came straight from the law of God. And what, I, what that means to us, and let me be very loving in saying this, we don't get to define who God is. God defines who he is. In fact, we don't get to make God in our image. Any God that you make in your own image is a God that can't save you, and it's an idol. We don't make God in our image. God has made us in his image. And we don't get to define God. God has defined for us who he is. So Nehemiah, his understanding of God has obviously come from the word of God. And it has left him hungry for the will of God. It's almost as if the more you truly seek the Lord, the more you'll want God's will in your life. And we are told that Nehemiah prayed four months before he did anything. Later in the book of Nehemiah, we're going to read that once they started working on the walls, it only took them 52 days to finish the wall, so less than two months. But understand this, don't miss this. A 52-day project had a four-month foundation of prayer. A 52-day project had a four-month foundation of prayer prayer there's many things that we can do after we pray but there is nothing that we should do before we pray prayer should be our first focus the first thing that we do i'm going to read a quote from d.a carson and i'm going to confess another sin to you because again i know you like it when i do that the words of d.a carson he says this we don't drift into spiritual life we don't drift into disciplined prayer we do not grow in prayer unless we plan to pray. 
that means we must set aside time to do nothing but pray. What we actually do reflects our highest priorities. That means we can proclaim our commitment to prayer until the cows come home. But unless we actually pray, our actions disown our words. Pray. This past week in Ecuador, God convicted my heart on day two in a way that I, don't, I hadn't even shared with the team. On day one, in every camp that we did, we did two a day, Andreas, one of the leaders, would, would pray a prayer with the kids. And, of course, he would pray it. They would repeat after him, and I knew exactly what they were doing. So the first couple times, of course, um, in fact, it was the second half of day one when it happened, sorry. He would pray, and they would pray. And so the first time, of course, I would just say what I thought he was saying. I was butchering it like crazy. And I knew I was butchering it like crazy. And, of course, I would only knew every 40th word of what it meant. And uh, in the second club, I was standing by an Ecuadorian, and I was praying, and she started laughing out loud because, of course, my Spanish is so bad. And at first, I was like, that's funny. I made her laugh. And then God convicted me. And God said, while you were spending your time doing that and making her laugh, you should be praying for those kids that they would come to know the God that they're being led to pray to. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, from that moment on, every single prayer that was being prayed, I, that's, what my, that's what my heart was praying. God, they're praying to you. They're being led to pray to you. May they come to know you. May they come to know you for who you are. May it change everything about them. The reality of a broken and contrite heart, may God break our hearts for what breaks his. Which leads us to number three, quickly, the reality of a broken privilege. The reality of a broken privilege, and this is more about our lives, meaning this, we take a lot of things for granted. Advances that one time seemed like life changers are now everyday staples of our lives. We take them for granted. It's hard for us to imagine there was actually a first day of electricity. Like no electricity, all of a sudden you have electricity. There was a first day of running water. There was a first day of the internet or the first day of actually having a cell phone. Today's kids, you don't know. You have no idea what it was like to have to entertain ourselves. You'll never know that battle. But, but here's the deal. Prayer is not an inalienable right or a privilege that all people have. Like you turn 18, you get to vote. That's not prayer. No, prayer is a blood-bought privilege by Jesus Christ to us, meaning the only way we are able to pray is because Jesus gave his body and shed his blood and the top of the, uh, the veil was ripped from top to bottom so that we can enter into the presence of God. But here's the deal. We have the privilege of prayer, but it is a broken privilege because many of us don't use it. We don't seek God. We don't pray to him. And the beauty is that Nehemiah prays at least 10 times in these 13 chapters. And here's the beauty. If you take a note, write this down. Every single time Nehemiah came to God empty-handed, but he never came to God uninvited. He came to God every time empty-handed, but he never came to God uninvited. And the same for us, brothers and sisters. We have nothing of our own to bring to God, but God is saying, come to me. Come to me, draw near to me, seek me, and you will find me if you seek me with all of your heart. 
So here's what I want to do in the closing moments that we have. I want to lead our faith family to spend some time in the presence of God, walking with him, worthy of him, and communing with him, that we might know him and make him known. And this reality will take place in our lives individually and corporately only in proportion to the amount of time we spend in the presence of God, in prayer, and in his word. So I want to end our time today by giving you a clear model of prayer. You, you know this model. We've given it to you. In fact, at the beginning of the year, we did on a Wednesday night a model of prayer, of just a, a method of prayer of how we can pray and how we can make our prayers more effective and more efficient. So I want to end our time by giving you that clear model. And we see it very clearly in Nehemiah's own prayer. And note that Nehemiah's prayer was a prayer that God was pleased to answer. And let me be, the, I'll be the first to admit what we, the church, the greatest need is not more messages on prayer. The greatest need is not a sermon series on prayer. Our greatest need is to pray, to pray, to seek God. What has prayer looked like in your life this past week? Let's take those four letters, pray, and through an acrostic, I'm going to show you just a practical way that we can spend time in the presence of God. Just a practical order of prayer. P stands for praise. We worship God for who he is. So in your prayer, begin by spending time praising God for who he is. Nehemiah does it in verse 5. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Do you see what's happening here? I pray that you do because there is no tangible evidence right now in this moment that God is being faithful to his people or that God is keeping his promises. Judah is scattered. Jerusalem, the walls have fallen down. They're no longer in a land flowing with milk and honey. But yet Nehemiah prays, God, you're faithful. You're good. You're a covenant-keeping God. You have not abandoned us. You Know our hurts. God, you love us. You keep your promises and you are near. Think about the faith to pray that when everything around him seemed chaotic. And here's the deal. If a day goes bad for you, you won't pray because you get mad at God and cross your arms. How selfish we are. How selfish we are that we dictate our relationship with God based on how good things are for us. And yet in the midst of things being terrible, Jerusalem being sitting ducks for the enemy, Nehemiah prays and he says, God, you are God and you forever will be who you are and you are enough for us. Listen, I wonder how many times we are guilty in our prayers of zooming right past God going right to us. Meaning we don't even think about the God we're praying to. All we care about is our needs. Basically, we reduce God to a genie who just exists to answer our three wishes a day. And we never think about the God that we're praying to. We never think about the fact that he is holy. And the only way we ever have any access to him is through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. That's it. And oh, that we could come to him and should come to him understanding who he is and what he has done in our lives. Begin by praising God for who he is, who his word shows him to be. The best thing I do is this. I read God's word first and then I pray. Because after I read God's word, I have reasons to praise him. There's things in his word that show me how to pray and how to praise him. Then secondly, R, repent. Confess your sin to God. When you read God's word, God will make known your sin. 
So Nehemiah praises God, but then he begins to confess his sin. In verse 6, confessing the sin of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. So public confession. Then Nehemiah quickly turns to his own sin. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly against you. Listen, you will never make progress in your spiritual life until you deal with your sin. Don't minimize it. Don't rename it. Don't simply try to manage it. Repent of it. Listen, we can't ignore our sin. You can't make a peace agreement with your sin. You can't come to your sin and try to make an agreement. You have to kill your sin. If you try to bargain with your sin, your sin will absolutely turn on you. It will betray you. And sometimes when we think about our sin, we have a tendency to lessen our sin. We say things like, well, yeah, I know I sin a lot, but my sin's not near as bad as Brother Curtis's. Of course, I can use him because he's not here today. But we begin to say things like that, and here's the deal. No matter how, how little we think our sin is, your tiniest sin still warrants the full wrath of God, and your tiniest sin still warranted Jesus dying for it. That's what our sin did. And here's the deal. Brothers and sisters, we've committed thousands upon thousands of them. Thousands upon thousands of sins we have committed. And I know another thought process is, Michael, you're making me feel guilty now, and I don't know if I like thinking about this because it's depressing. I'm not calling you to wallow in your sin. I'm calling you to run to God for his forgiveness. Pastor Mike said last week, one of the greatest verses you will memorize as a child of God is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Why would we hide our sin from a God who wants to forgive us from it? Repent. Confess your sin to God. Turn from your sin. Then A, ask Ask, intercede for needs around you, for particular needs in your life and the lives of others. So Nehemiah praised God. He sought forgiveness, and then he was reminded how much he needed God. And I love what Nehemiah does. Before he asks God for anything, he declares God's word over the situation, and then he asks God to remember his word. And just be very clear here. God will never forget his word. We don't remind God's word or we don't remind God of his word because God forgets it. We remind God of his word because we forget it. And we need to remember his word. Listen to verses 8 and 9. Remember the word that you commanded Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandment and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. And just so we don't get an unhealthy picture of prayer here, as if Nehemiah prayed and boom, it was all answered. Nehemiah prayed for four months. This is the picture of ask and it will be given. Keep asking. Seek and you will find. Keep seeking. Knock and the door will be open. Keep knocking and keep knocking and keep knocking. Don't lose heart. Let me just ask this. What do your prayers say about God's power? If someone's estimation of God's power were based on your prayers this week, how big would they think God is? Let me say it again. If someone's estimation of God's power were based entirely on your prayers this past week, how great would they think God is? 
And here's what I'm saying. Here's the point I'm getting to. In light of the world that we live in, we need to do some bigger praying. We need to pray bigger. We need to pray bigger for bigger needs in our lives. Intercede. God wants to answer us according to his will. We need to believe that. God wants to answer us. He wants to answer us. And then why? Yield. Surrender your life to God. Look at verse 11. Nehemiah ends his prayer this way. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power, by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And before we look at how Nehemiah surrendered to the will of God, I want you to quickly look at the last two words of this prayer. What are the last two words of this prayer? This man. Nehemiah 2.1 tells us that this man was named Artaxerxes. At the time, the Persian Empire was the world's sole superpower. So politically and militarily speaking, Artaxerxes was the most powerful person on the face of the earth when Nehemiah is praying. But this most powerful man on the face of the earth, when Nehemiah is seeking God, Nehemiah doesn't call him the powerful one. He says he's just a man. He's just a man. God, compared to your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your power, he's just a man. He's just a speed bump, God, and your will. You'll just move right over him. The greater that God is to you, the smaller your problems become. So back to the prayer. The question for us, which was the question for Nehemiah, are we willing to be the answer to our own prayers? Because Nehemiah was. He prayed and guess who, God, guess who God sent? Nehemiah. In Matthew 9, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers and send them out. And they prayed and guess who God sent out? Them. Are we willing to be the answer to our own prayers? Are you willing to act? Are you willing to go? Are you willing to tell? Are you willing to forgive? Are you willing to do and trust God to do what only he can do? Are you willing to step out on faith even when you don't see any evidence, knowing that God called me to this, therefore I'm going to do it? Nehemiah was, so therefore God did what only God could do. But let me end this way. What are the broken down walls in your life? What are the broken down walls in your family? Maybe even what are the broken down walls in our church? It's a whole lot easier for, for us to identify the broken down walls in other people's life. It's so easy for me to say, I know what their broken down wall is. I could tell everybody. But here's where I think we should begin. God, show me the areas in my life that are broken down. Show me the areas in my life, God, that are in disarray. Show me the areas in my life where I'm a sitting duck to the enemy. And God, by your grace, by your mercy, help me to rebuild. So when God breaks your heart, what breaks his, be prepared to act. But before you act, pray. As you act, pray. Seek him. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask the praise team to come forward as we 
enter this time of invitation and consecration and let us pray as they come. Oh, Holy Spirit, you have spoke. There has been so much, God, for us to, to hear. But the truth of it comes down to, God, what, according to your word, through your spirit, what are you telling us to do right now? What is it that right now, by your word, through your spirit, that you're calling us to do? And God, whatever it is, Lord, may we obey. Even if we don't know what it looks like, even if we don't know what it means, God, give us the obedience to do whatever it is you're calling us to do. Maybe you're calling us to talk to someone and say, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what God's doing. Just pray that I can understand what God is asking me to do. Others of us, we know. And maybe God is calling us to hit our knees as Nehemiah hit his knees. May God, Lord, finish this time as only you can. In Jesus' name.